Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing the Podcast, where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. This is your editor, Hosan. Today we continue our interview with Prof. Joseph Sung, Dean of the Lee Kong Chan School of Medicine and Senior Vice President, Health and Life Sciences of NTU. In the previous episode, Prof. Sung shared his experiences in medicine and how they have shaped his attitudes towards medicine and life. In this episode, we discuss how medical education should adapt to the COVID-19 pandemic. Prof. Sung talks about his vision of integrating AI knowledge with clinical skills in the LKC curriculum, the values that higher education should impart to young adults, as well as the importance of communication skills as a doctor. Prof. Song, coming to Singapore, uh, do you have any new research projects that you would like to embark on or any new areas of research that you think are very, uh, they're full of potential? The main reason why I come to Singapore, particularly to NTU, is because I see the next big wave in medicine is to use AI and robotics and technology in medicine. And NTU has a very strong AI team and a very strong robotic team. And we have a young medical school who can, you know, we don't have a very fixed format. We can still change a lot and try to adapt ourselves to the changing paradigm in medicine. I think this is the ideal place for me to try out on this and to finish my career in an exciting area. Could you maybe tell me an area of AI application that you think is potentially very interesting? AI has so many uh, applications in medicine that almost everything that you do in the future will be permeated with machine learning and neural networks and so on. But basically, you can divide it into three levels. On a diagnostic level, on a a personal uh, clinician's personal level, it will help you to make a quicker diagnosis, more accurate diagnosis. For example, if you look at uh, a biopsy sample with your microscope, all right, you are experienced uh, pathologist, you can detect, oh, this is a cancer, this is not a cancer, what kind of uh, infection. But the computer read your slide, uh, they will not focus on one area, they scan over the whole piece of slide and then pick up some messages and information that you may not even take notice of. So it will give you a lot of new information about uh, the pathology of that patient. The same applies to CT scan or all kinds of radiological images. The same applies to ECG. The same applies to endoscopic image. I mean, with our naked eye and with our experience, there is so much information that we can extract from this diagram, from this picture. But a computer can see beyond naked eye and can tell you a lot more information than just the black and the white dot on the chest X-ray. Okay? So on the diagnostic level, this is very important, but you can also predict, at least claim that it can predict the outcome of the disease. When this patient with COVID comes in, AI can tell you, oh, maybe he, he needs to go to ICU immediately because the chance of dying from COVID is 90% in this person. But that person can go home because he's unlikely to suffer from severe illness. I mean, predict disease outcome. 
even predict uh, this person will develop um, the prostate cancer in 10 years' time. This is what they promise. So that is from the diagnostic level. And then the second level is AI can theoretically be able to help healthcare providers to put their resources into best use. Just take my example of COVID patient comes to the casualty, to the emergency department. If the machine can tell us this patient doesn't need to be hospitalized and it's quite safe to put him in just some isolation facilities at home. Then I save a bed, I save an ICU bed for somebody who is critically ill. All right? If the AI can tell me that this patient with breast cancer is unlikely to um, benefit from this new chemotherapy or immunotherapy agent, then, well, we may spare the patient from all the side effects and complications of chemotherapy and just keep him or her comfortable. And the resources can be used to treat other patients who is going to respond to this chemotherapy. Now, having said that, it is not without risk that the machine make a wrong prediction. All right? So if this patient actually may respond to the treatment, and just because the algorithm tell me that she's not unlikely to respond, so I decided not to give her this treatment, who is going to take the responsibility when decisions are wrong? Right? So there is a, still a lot of problems that we need to resolve. Other than just improving on the algorithm, I think there is a lot of social and ethical and even legal issues that we need to discuss. And the last part, the, the third level that I, AI can help is it can actually help you to monitor your own health. All right? It will tell you, oh, you have walked this morning I have walked 6,500 steps, I still need 3,500. Or today my heartbeat is 95% normal, but 5% is arrhythmia. Uh, my blood pressure actually sh shoot up during three minutes uh, during the daytime when I have having a fight with my wife and so on. So all this information go to the cloud and being interpreted by a machine may be able to predict who is going to get a heart attack and who needs to see a doctor. Or you can even use it to modify your lifestyle, uh, how much fat you can eat and how much exercise you need to do and so on. So it will empower the patient to look after themselves and hopefully can reduce the burden of healthcare system as well. But do you think AI will ever be able to replace the human aspect of mm. being a doctor? If you believe that medicine is not just science, medicine is humanity and science, then AI at the most can take the hard science part of medicine away. But the humanity side, the human part of medicine, still needs a human doctor to take care of. Okay? What does that mean? Uh, I have uh, cancer. Okay, your machine can tell me what stage of cancer it is, what type of cells, and my likelihood of responding to a radiotherapy and chemotherapy. All this information are fed to me, and the choice is that uh, you cannot do surgery, you can only have radiotherapy. All the literature being listed out, all the drugs with the dosages being given to me. But I have my emotion. I may actually don't want to do anything. 
All right. I may need to discuss with my family. I may need to cry over the shoulder of my mother. All right. So all this human part at the moment cannot be replaced, and I believe that it will never be able to be replaced by a machine. So does that mean doctors and nurses in the future can only be doing this patting on the shoulder job for for medicine, and the rest is being taken? No, I don't think so. I I think we will in the end go into a hybrid mode of practicing medicine. That AI-assisted medicine will be practicing with us, but we should not have AI-driven medicine. That means the machine cannot dictate what choices do you have and what you should do with the patient. It, the final decision. Uh, especially with life and death situation, has to be a process where you convey all the information to your patient, and together you make a decision. What choices will you make? So AI should not be totally taking over the decision process, but it would provide all the information. Maybe there will be a certain level of automation. But like driving a driverless car, okay? You know when a company like Tesla, they develop driverless car. They actually divide the car into several levels, usually called six levels of automation, from totally manual to totally driverless. In between, you have different levels of taking control of the machine,、uh, taking over the driver's seats. So you can decide on at what level I should take over. I should overrule the decision made by the machine. I think that is ideal because there are other parts of the disease and the human being that you need to consider and to look after. When I was a young doctor, patients to me is nothing more than an organ with a diagnosis. When I'm getting old. And sometimes become a patient myself. And after going through SARS, I realized that、uh, a patient is a human being. He is usually somebody's father, somebody's husband, somebody's son. So a decision is not just simply genomic, metagenomic,、uh, together with some biochemical parameters.、Uh, there are some human part of it that you need to consider. That's why、um, William Osler said, "A good doctor looks after the disease of a patient, but a superb doctor looks after a patient who has the disease." Of course, as a dean of a medical school, naturally the students have questions about how you intend to evolve the curriculum. Perhaps we would like to find out more about how, as a dean, you intend to train your future medical students to be able to both integrate this aspect of AI as well as to be even more human. Good question. I think there are two things that we need to do in parallel. One is that although we have the technology here, but the technology is still not fully utilized on the ground, because having patient and doctors to accept technology and to trust technology before they actually fully understand is actually a big challenge. Your computer. Tell us that this person's breast cancer is not likely to respond to this new immunotherapy agent, but there's no reason behind it. I don't understand the mechanism, and yet I have to trust your computer 
and not to give immunotherapy to this patient. That is a big leap of faith, right? So as a patient and as a doctor, how can I trust this computerized uh, decision? On the other hand, um, if I am a patient, I may be taken care of by a robot uh, in the elderly home. But that is, this is a piece of cold machine, all right? I still want to have a human being, better still, my family to look after me. So there is a lot of social and psychological and ethical issues that we need to handle before uh, AI can actually be applied. So my two-pronged approach is, number one, how to make technology being acceptable and understandable by patients and doctors. That is very important. Okay, but on the other hand, we need to train our doctors and nurses how to work hand in hand with machines and with computers. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on, we do not want machines to take over all our jobs and they cannot, they should not. But they are actually better than us in certain way, all right? They have got much more information and they can analyze this information much better than my human brain. So how can I get the best of both worlds and have, using his knowledge and my human nature to provide the best care to my patient? I think that is the kind of thing that we we need to think about um, in training future doctors. And also in your age and in your generation, studying medicine should no longer be relying on memorizing big textbooks. Look at that book. Uh, that is the Oxford Textbook of Medicine. When I was a student, this book had two volumes. When I took MRCP exam, this book has three volumes. Now I am an author for one of the chapters. This book has got four volumes. But who is going to read four volumes of medicine? You don't have enough RAM for that. So you have to learn how to uh, make sense of the data that is coming at you. What is noise? What is real knowledge? And how to make use of that knowledge. I think that is another uh, important thing that we need to put into our curriculum to train our students and future doctors how to work with machine and how to deal with these oceans of uh, data. Do you have any plans regarding how to integrate this into our curriculum and perhaps how to integrate the medicine curriculum with more AI or more uh, engineering to help us? I think at least yeah. uh, students need to have some understanding of AI and data analytics some basic stuff, all right? You don't have to be an AI engineer. You don't have to be a data scientist, but you need to have some basic understanding. Why, what is a random forest and, and so on. So, so these are the methodology in artificial intelligence. And then you should also have some discussion about the pros and cons, the capability and limitations of AI and how to deal with the ethical issues the social issues and so on. In other words, to learn how to um, work with the machine. So this, this can be incorporated somehow into our curriculum. But one more thing which is very, very important in my mind in the curriculum, 
for today and for tomorrow is to train our students' communication skills. Because um, no matter how good your computer is in making decisions, people still want to talk to a doctor with blood and flesh instead of talking to a robot, right? But nowadays, uh, young people, with due respect, may not actually have a good skills of communication. So how to talk to a real person, a dying patient, a wife of a dying husband, the family. There's a lot of skills and a lot of human nature that is involved. So communication skills is very important. So these are some of the areas that we need to strengthen in our curriculum. Thinking about medical education and higher education, uh, what do you think are the roles of higher education in our modern society? And what does it help to shape students in the future? Well, there are two types of people. Some believe that higher education should create jobs, should help the economy of the society, should make everybody live better in whatever sense. Okay? Well, that is not wrong. That is important. But I also think that higher education should uh, help us to nurture better people. People who are not selfish. People who have interest in other people's need. People who have social responsibility. People who have values that is not just driven by how much money you earn every month and uh, how, what kind of car you are driving, what kind of house you are living in. So, to me, education, including higher education, should be um, the very important tool to mould good people for the future. Mm. And do you think that higher education at the moment is achieving that goal? And how can it do better? Or, yeah, and how can it improve on it? I think um, we are heading towards this direction, but we may not be doing enough. We may not be achieving the goal that we want to. So a lot of emphasis has been put on whether you are, you are innovative, whether you can form your own company and then you create jobs. All right. So that is, uh, that, that is uh, common to many universities around the world. But we also look after students' uh, well-being to find out who is depressed, who has a problem, and so on, try to help. But I think we should do more than that. Finding the depressed students and try to prevent suicide is too late. <laughs> we, you have to give people uh, some opportunity to develop a resilient personality, someone who, who can face adversities, somebody who can help others when people are in need. That sort of opportunities uh, cannot be taught in the classroom. We need a lot of, we call it experiential learning. We should take students to go to villages, to build roads and bridges, live with uh, farmers. Have you ever lived with a farmer in, in their home? I have. And that was a hell of experience. Because the living condition is so primitive. The toilet is somewhere that you hope you will never need to go. I stayed there for two weeks. I try not to drink, I try not to eat, because then I don't need to go to the toilet so often. <laughs> but 
I mean, that kind of uh, experience would tell you there are many different things that in your life that you do not appreciate, but you are actually enjoying it. It will make you a very different person. When, when you become a lawyer, a doctor or accountant, you can help a lot of other people, not just help yourself. So building values is very important. Do you have any examples of students who you think have achieved this goal of what you say, of developing young people into a virtuous uh, people? Oh yes. But when I was in Hong Kong, actually joining some student projects, uh, as I told you just now, went to the most remote part of China to build small bridges, not, not the, you know, the highway type. Because in many small villages, there are still these little brooks or river, which dries up in the, on a dry season, but becomes a big river and wash people away. So uh, we try to identify these places and build small bridges across uh, the river so that kids can walk to school without the danger of being washed away. And during this process, uh, we usually take two to three universities in Hong Kong and work with two to three universities in mainland China. So altogether about 40-50 students, all from different backgrounds. All right, and I have to uh, stay with them uh, in the dormitory and sometimes we sleep on the floor with a sleeping bag. In the daytime, we, we build the bridges together. We hammer, we chisel and so on. In the nighttime, we have to cook big dinner for 40, 50 people and uh, we have fun and we talk. I mean, that kind of experience, uh, it, it's wonderful. I think it helps students to grow. It also helped me to grow and I think this is the kind of uh, education I call experiential learning and cannot be done in the classroom with air conditioning. Currently in these times, we are unfortunately all stuck at home in front of our computers for most of our learning. How do you think us students now can develop ourselves and how do you intend to develop students with all these restrictions of big group gatherings or going overseas in place? Well, I hope this will all be over. I hope you'll be able to um, meet with more people and you can go to places very soon. But you don't, you don't need to be gathered with a large group of people. Even talk to one or two persons. Even talk to one patient in the ward. Even talk to the old lady selling oranges outside. It can be a lesson for you. Can be, you can learn something from it. It all depends on whether or not you seize the opportunity of wherever you encounter. Sometimes you just uh, sit on the bus and you see something, break the ice and you talk to the guy sitting next to you and you learn something. I actually learned a lot in my long haul flight. There was a period of about 10 years that I fly a lot. So I uh, suddenly feel that, well, since I'm sitting next to this guy for 12 hours, might as well talk to him a little bit. And I've learned a lot from just talking to somebody whom I've never met before sharing a lot of uh, the experience. I, I remember there was one time I flew to Germany, to Frankfurt, and in the flight, Sydney to me was obviously a German. I, I just couldn't stop uh, myself from talking to him. I said, well, what do you think about Germany? Your, your Chancellor, Angela Merkel, opened the border for the Syrian refugees. 
I mean, at that time, there were millions of people across the border. A lot of countries tried to stop them, right? Close the door to them. But Chancellor Merkel opened. So I just talked to this German gentleman. He said, well, this is something that we should do. I mean, we are human beings and we should help out each other, whatever color he is and whatever uh, political background. And then the next, the next guy said, no, 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 this is not true. I mean, you, 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 you bring in all these people and our crime will go up and we will have uh, a lot of jobless people on the street and you, you, you mess up the whole country. So the two of them actually start debating. And, well, I've learned a lot about humanities and about politics in Germany too. So it depends on how you uh, use your opportunity. A couple of weeks back, uh, because of the Tantoxin cluster, LKC was actually considered part of the Tantoxin campus, mm. and because of that, we had to close down. And I just wanted to ask, you know, what are the processes that happens behind the scenes on the administrative side? We may not totally agree with that, but we think it is probably better to be safe than sorry. So when you manage a uh, infectious disease, you always take the approach of overkilling. All right. If you need to do this much, you better do that much in order to um, make sure nothing, nothing leaks out. So uh, we, we abide to the regulation that we need to uh, close down. But we also find that, number one, there are students who taking clinical classes will have their class cancelled. We don't know at that time how to make up for it. And the second thing is um, we worry about the examination coming. The building is shut down and how do we do the exam? Because some of the exam is not just uh, on paper. An OSCE exam, you need some setup there. Professor Cleland and her team has done a lot of things to try to accommodate uh, these changes. But I also pointed out to everyone here as well as to the MOH directors that we are training medical students, so this is part of the training. You cannot just hide them and protect them. You should equip them and prepare them to face this situation. I mean, if every time there is an outbreak of whatever, we just close down the medical school and not allow students to go to the ward, that may not be the best way to prepare them. So I hope we will have better way of preparing students for example, give you guys infection control uh, training in, in year one so that you, you don't feel that you are unprepared when you go to the ward. And then you should go. You choose to be a doctor, right? And you cannot be suddenly become a doctor on a special day uh, five years later. I mean, it's, just, it's a process and you better start to practice some of this uh, when you are a student. Of course, there is a risk. We have to calculate the, the risk versus the benefit. Mm. How do you tread the fine line between being a school authority and also being a, a, a spokesperson for students? It's very difficult because a lot of time, right or wrong is not clearly defined. Black is not like black or white. What I did was I tried to treat them as my children, and you be their father. So sometimes you have to be very tough and say no is no. 
sometimes you have to stand on their side and try to protect them from hurting themselves. So it, it really depends on the situation. Coming in as a dean of LKC, mm. what's the most important piece of advice you can give to a young medical student? Well, to get your MBBS. But at the same time, you should also keep your eyes open to learn more about the world, learn more about human being, talk to people, because this is a human business, right? You are dealing with people. If you don't know how to talk to people, if you don't know how to feel how people feel, if you don't know how to uh, encourage people and get them out of their misery, if you don't enjoy talking to people, you shouldn't be a doctor. So try talk to different kinds of people. I can assure all, all of you that you will, be, you will be having a good life. I mean, none of you will be uh, out of job and uh, starving and so on. So your life will be quite reasonable. And that is good enough. But there are so many other things that is worthwhile to do.